Thank you so much, Jared. Uh, before I get started, let me just say to all of you, I've said this to some of you individually, uh, but let me say to everyone here tonight what a pleasure it is to be here. Um, uh, Jared and Roberto have been gracious hosts this afternoon. Juan did a fine job and was so helpful in, in bringing me in and making me feel welcome even before I got here. I have to say that one, I don't know where Juan is, actually. Oh, there you are, okay, up, up in the dark. Um, uh, I have to, I, I, I wanted to say before I get into, the, get into my talk um, that one thing that really has taken me just in the last three hours since I've landed is how beautiful El Paso is. Um, uh, you know, if you're from New York like I am, El Paso is not one of those places I must admit to you, that has a reputation for great natural beauty. Um, in fact, it's a magnificent city. The mountains are gorgeous. Uh, the tour has been wonderful. The campus is beautiful. This, this is Quinn Hall. This is one of the most beautiful rooms I have ever spoken in. Uh, and you all miners, right, should be proud of your campus. I'm, I'm very delighted. Anyway, um, I'm not here just to flatter you. I'm here to give a talk on Thomas and Chesterton. Uh, okay, so when I proposed this talk to Juan and to the Thomistic Institute, I had proposed it as a talk that was primarily going to be about Thomas Aquinas with a little bit of G.K. Chesterton thrown in and I think a few other thinkers. Um, as I was composing this talk, uh, and I have to, I, I will again, I feel like I'm starting, well perhaps it's, it's uh, appropriate for a talk to a Catholic group like this that I'm beginning my, my, uh, my, my discussion with so many confessions. Uh, but I will confess to you also um, that I had not read that much G.K. Chesterton. I wanted to make a point or two based on him, and that was my plan. Uh, but Juan told me that the Thomistic Institute this semester has been reading Chesterton's book on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and so, beginning back in, I forget when exactly you invited me, but I think it was February uh, when you invited me, I started reading G.K. Chesterton, uh, and I somehow fell in love, right? Um, these books have been so wonderful and clever and delightful that my talk, if anything, is now more Chesterton-centric than it is Thomas-centric. Uh, I still claim to be a scholar only of Thomas. Chesterton is new to me. Some of you may know things about him that I don't know, but I found his writing interesting enough and his particular breed of Thomism interesting enough that I thought it would be a worthwhile subject for this talk. Now, as I've said, uh, I'm going to provide a sketch of something uh, that I think Chesterton and Thomas have in common. Right? Um, you all know that Chesterton read Thomas and read him carefully. You all know that he affected his worldview. I want to draw out some of the ways in which, with respect to his political thought, Thomas may, uh, rather, Chesterton may have been inspired by Thomas. Um, uh, yeah, uh, let, me, let me just uh, read the, Sorry, I, I, my, my, uh, uh, my eyes slipped off. Okay. Uh, so Chesterton and Thomas, uh, though they do have, I suggest, common ground as thinkers, are quite different as authors, as different as could be in some ways. Um, Chesterton was a journalist, a novelist, and a writer of popular books. Um, he wrote texts 
brilliant and studied texts about theologians and about saints, um, but he was not a scholar or philosopher in the manner of Thomas Aquinas. It wasn't his audience and it wasn't his intention. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, as I said, it takes only a few moments reading Chesterton to notice that that's the case. The essays that he writes are all designed to entertain while they instruct, to please while they teach you something. Um, I refer you to this lovely collection of essays that I've now read, I think all of, uh, In Defense of Sanity, it's called. It's a great title for a Chesterton book, I think. Um, uh, it's filled with these wonderful meditations that often begin from very simple observations or events in his own life. Uh, his writing surprises you at every turn. He has, for instance, this lovely meditation on love of homeland, human nature, and the importance of thought with the rather unassuming title, A Piece of Chalk. Um, his essay collection, Come to Think of It, opens with an essay which is called On Essays. And that essay begins with the following, I think, daring line. Um, there are dark and morbid moods in which I am tempted to feel that evil re-entered the world in the form of essays. Um, so his writings are all filled with this kind of joyful, meandering curiosity, introspection, gentle, often self-deprecating wit, and it makes him a constant pleasure to read. There are a few nicer things to do I've learned uh, just in the past three months, fewer nicer things that, to do than to wake up on a weekend morning, pull out some random essay from some Chesterton collection, read and see where his adventurous mind takes you. So as you can see, and my gratitude is extended to all of you for this, in the last few months I've become a fan. Thomas Aquinas' writing is, is not really like that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he never wrote anything one could really call an essay, uh, a couple of polemical pieces being the closest thing he ever did, making use of that form. Um, Uh-oh. Oh. Uh, Thomas's best-known works are summas, summas of theology in one case, summa of the case against the Gentiles in another, it's on Christians, right? His other major works are, so summas are these massive magisterial works that are tours of all available, for him, what came to virtually all available human knowledge. Uh, his other major works are commentaries, line-by-line -line exegeses of Aristotle, the Bible, and a few other theological works. He also engages in various disputes and makes other kinds of ordered arguments um, and all of that's been preserved in the text that we have from him. His work, unlike Chesterton's, does not wander, but follows a path he charts out clearly and to which he sticks. Something of an anachronism, I think, to call him a systematic thinker, but he comes quite close, uh, and at least he is impressively rigorous and thorough. Um, Certainly, what he says is meant to hold together clearly and fully, and it's the work of a mind who was a student and teacher of great ideas in their connection to each other. That said, while their style of writing was so different, 
Chesterton, it seems to me, learned a great deal from Thomas. He wrote a biography of Thomas, which you know because you've been reading it, uh, and a study of his thought, it's a biography and a study of his thought, um, that the great Thomist, Etienne Gilson, described as, quote, without possible comparison, the best book ever written on St. Thomas. Uh, I wonder sometimes whether Gilson overshot the mark a little in saying that, but his authority carries a lot of weight. Probably, you know, one of the very few finest Thomists of the 20th century thought Chesterton, right? His, this, this uh, uh, what from a scholarly point of view might seem like a mere journalist's book on Thomas had understood and conveyed things that all the scholars with all of their efforts didn't manage to get across as clearly, as succinctly, and as effectively, right? Um, so although it's the case that Chesterton, in his non-theological writings, doesn't cite Thomas too often, at least not as far as I've seen. I've only read five or six. But as far as I've seen, he doesn't refer specifically to Thomas too often in his non-theological writings, uh, it does seem to me that there's a kind of Thomistic spirit that infuses them, that governs them, and that's what I want to speak about. In some ways, I think the most powerful influence that Thomas had on Chesterton um, is what I would call, to use for a moment pretentious language, uh, his phenomenology of the human mind. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to put that also somewhat less pretentiously, right? Um, because I don't know. Is everyone here? Uh, I'm not going to do surveys. Never mind. Um, uh, 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 so to put that less pretentiously, uh, like Thomas, Chesterton was really interested in understanding how human thought works, right? Um, and he was always aware when he talked about nature and when he spoke about the world of the thing that was grasping the reality that was around it. He very much has a human-centered account of the world in a sense, right? I mean, and I'll, I'll give the other sense later. But at least to begin with, he was always aware that we needed to speak as human beings because we needed to think as human beings because we are human beings and can't but be human beings. Um, uh, uh, when he speaks about how we perceive things, Chesterton, I mean, when he speaks about how we perceive things and how we form ideas of things, his writing bears what seems to me a strong Thomistic imprint. And there's something uniquely valuable about seeing how a modern, how a contemporary talking about the world in which he lives puts this Thomistic framework and these Thomistic ideas to use. Um, but I'm not going to do Chesterton's full phenomenology of human perception today. My promised theme is a defense of politics, a Catholic perspective on politics. And that's what I want to focus on. And it's there that I think, not only there, but it's at least there that in my judgment, Thomas and Chesterton have some very important things in common. Uh, I would just add, uh, and I'll say this again more clearly later, um, they're both students of human nature, and for both of them, political life is one of the most important manifestations of human nature, and I'll try to make specific what that means. Um, before I get into the weeds of this, I need to explain this topic, I think, a little bit further. 
a defense of politics, I said. Uh, why should politics need a defense? What is politics to be such a thing that needs a defense? Um, first, let me give the reasons for that. That word politics taken, so now we're this, so if, if you want to divide my talk into sections, that was the opening part. This is the statement of the big topic, and then I'll go through Thomas and Chesterton, and I'll explain how as I get there, lay out two dimensions of their thought. Um, so first, uh, again, I just want to say what I mean by a defense of politics and why I think that's necessary. That word politics, taken by itself, often has a very negative connotation. I think you all know that from your interactions when people describe, say, their reasons for being frustrated with their job as the fact that there's too much politics at the office. Office politics. Who could you know? Who could imagine such an awful thing in some ways? Uh, it sometimes sounds like politics refers only to the seamy and unpleasant sides of human engagement. For Christians like Chesterton, like Thomas, that poses a special problem. Right? For from a Christian point of view, so the seeminess of politics is what I mean. That can pose a special problem. So from that point of view, it makes some amount of sense at least to wonder whether engagement in politics is part of the proper vocation of a human being. First, we think of the text of the New Testament itself. Uh, it doesn't, unlike the Hebrew Bible and unlike the Quran, it does not contain a robust political teaching. Right. Um, really, there are only a few famous lines sprinkled here and there. Uh, Render unto Caesar, which everybody knows. Romans 13, you ought to obey your political rulers. First uh, Peter chapter 2 and a few other instances like that. Jesus has remarked that his kingdom is not of this world. Those are the kinds of things, right? But there's nothing like a robust account of what a system of government should be like or how human beings should engage in governing themselves. Uh, if anything, it seems to point in the direction, first blush, not my final opinion for the record, but if anything, it seems to point in the direction of a sort of political quietism. Um, and maybe there's a reason for that, right? The high demands of Christianity, high moral demands of Christianity, could seem to be incompatible with the compromises that it seems political life always involved. After all, if one's treasures are in heaven, um, it might make sense to take little thought for the politics of this world. And one might prefer to preserve one's purity perfectly rather than getting involved in that messy business. Uh, Chesterton also got me excited about alliteration, another one of his great virtues. So for the backbone of my talk tonight, and this is where the real substance of my argument is going to be, I want to highlight two important ways in which it seems to me Chesterton's politics are like Thomas's, and which taken together can form something like a defense of the need for serious political engagement. The first of those is Chesterton's particular and somewhat peculiar breed of conservatism. Um, that's a very complicated word with Chesterton, and I'll get into that as I go. Uh, the second thing 
is his view and Thomas's view of nature. Two big things that it seems to me they both share. Two great views that it seems to me they both share. In talking about them in this way, I'm going to make a special effort to set them apart from views typical of the modern world, parts of modernism that Chesterton repeatedly criticizes. As I said before, I think one of the great reasons to read someone like Chesterton for a Thomist and for a place like the Thomistic Institute is that applying Thomas's uh, thought to a very foreign, a framework that to him would have been very foreign doesn't always come naturally. And having a great Thomist who can talk about these things, just talk about the world in which he lived, is of real value for us. Um, okay, uh, so that's my plan in brief, and I'm going to take up each of those points, conservatism and nature in turn. I should say that I think these are not totally separate points, but something like two sides of the same coin, right? And I, I think by the end you'll see what I mean when I say these are two ways of talking about the same thing, uh, but I think conceptually it's helpful to divide them up so that we can do a kind of proper tour of these parts of their thought. Okay, so now I want to talk about Chesterton's, uh, what I call the conservatism or the prudent conservatism or qualified conservatism of Chesterton and Thomas. As I assume you all know, Chesterton has a reputation of one as one of the great conservative minds of the 20th century, or for people who don't like him, as one of the uh, unfortunately influential conservative minds of the 20th century. Uh, he himself was not really crazy about that term conservatism. Uh, he has a famous line on conservatives and progressives in an essay of his called The Blunders of Our Parties. Uh, this one's not on your handout, but I'm going to read the quote at some length. Chesterton writes the following. The whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business... It's funny, right? <laughs> Chesterton's so funny. Anyway, um, uh, the business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from being corrected. <laughs> Even when the revolutionist might himself repent of his revolution, the traditionalist is already defending it as part of his tradition. <laughs> Thus, we have two great types. The advanced person who rushes into ruin, uh, uh, da, 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 um, yeah, sorry, the advanced person who rushes into ruin, and the retrospective person who admires the ruins. He admires them especially by moonlight, not to say moonshine. Each new blunder of the progressive or prig becomes instantly a legend of immemorial antiquity for the snob. This is called the balance or mutual check in our constitution. Okay. <laughs> so it's a wonderful account. Um, uh, clever as always, as you can see. Uh, you can see, so that Chesterton, so you can see from this that Chesterton had little patience for stuffy old nostalgia, for old things, um, and brainless attachments to doing things the way that they had always been done. If that's what conservatism is, uh, he was against it. 
Indeed, there are moments, and I'll read one in a minute, uh, some surprising moments where Chesterton even refers to himself as a liberal. But at the same time, we all know that this is not the whole story, right? Uh, um, uh, at the same time, there is, of course, some important truth to the thought that Chesterton was a conservative, and he's happy to own up to that also. Uh, it's not an accident that that's his reputation. Where does that come from? Where does that take its form? In the first place, Chesterton was a staunch opponent of everything he called progressivism. Uh, you can see that already from the caricature in the first long quote that I read out, right? Um, uh, he parodies or spoofs progressives as much as he spoofs conservatives. Um, he diagnosed Broadly, Chesterton diagnosed many ills in modern society, and he took progressivism to be among the most important and influential of those. Now, in the same breath, Chesterton's a subtle enough thinker that you have to always be qualifying everything you say. Um, that doesn't mean that he was against all possibility of progress or all change, far from it. Um, it means, though, that there was a particular breed of thought with particular, a particular understanding of what the future would be that he believed to be deeply misguided. That critique can be found in many places throughout his writings. I'll call your attention to just one, which I think defines the basic thought that Chesterton had about progressivism as such. In an essay he wrote on H.G. Wells, do you guys all know H.G. Wells? He's the famous uh, science fiction author, really the one of the first great science fiction authors who wrote Island of Dr. Moreau and Invisible Man, but he was also a very radically progressive socialist of a certain type, right, a certain, certain sort. Um, uh, and he was, in his own lifetime, extremely influential in his political beliefs. Winston Churchill, actually, when he was a kid, read H.G. Wells. Uh, if you all know Churchill's famous famous uh, line that uh, a man who he is uh, not a socialist, I'm paraphrasing, I'm probably off a little bit, uh, says a man who's not a socialist when he's a kid uh, has no heart, a man who remains a socialist when he's an adult has no head, something like that. <laughs> um, uh, but I say that only to say he was very impressed by H.G. Wells' vision for a while, right, at least for a little while. Um, Chesterton uh, uh, has the following in, in his essay on the, right, um, in his essay, What I Saw in America, Chesterton offers the following harsh assessment of Wells' progressivism. Wells' progress, progressivism, I should say, for Chesterton was a belief that the world eventually would improve even to the point of perfection, right? It had something of a Marxist flavor running underneath it, right? Scientific forces were at work that would eventually bring about a kind of utopia. Chesterton responds to that claim in the following terms. Again, I think this is clever. Uh, there are more, they are, these are the progressives, they are more crushed by progress than any pietists by providence, right? So he says the progressives are, in a way, more deluded by their notion of progressivism than the uh, strictest, as he calls them here, pietist would be by believing that God's hand is at work in the direction of history. Here's how he explains it. They are not allowed to question that whatever has happened recently was all for the best. 
Now, progress is providence without God. I was like, that's a good line. Progress is providence without God. Uh, that is, it is a theory that everything has always perpetually gone right by accident. It is a sort of atheistic optimism based on an everlasting coincidence far more miraculous than a miracle. Man has made a great many mistakes. Modern man has made a great many mistakes. Indeed, in the case of that progressive and pioneering character, modern man, one is sometimes tempted to say that he has made nothing of mistakes. So he's, he's, he's very suspicious of this teaching. Anyway, um, I draw this out because it's a particular breed of modern progressivism, a particular ideology that he claims has taken, that Chesterton claims, and I think rightly has largely taken hold in his Britain, that needs to be resisted. For him, it's far less persuasive than a belief in God's providence, even an untutored belief in God's providence. But that's not the only breed of ideology affecting the modern world for Chesterton. Um, and its presence is not the only challenge or the deepest challenge that modern human beings face. Rather, for Chesterton, and I use this as an example of an ideology that he thought had taken hold, but in a way for him, the more striking thing is that he believed room was left by modernity for ideologies like that to take hold. Um, and there's room for that because modernity has lost its way. He explains that problem in uh, the first chapter of What's Wrong with the World, right? This early book he wrote, 1910, it's actually mostly a critique of the uh, of, uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat friendly critique, really interesting book, some friendly critique of certain kinds of modern socialism. Uh, but he says the social, I mean, he grants importantly even to Wells, they have a point because they see that there's a problem, right? And they, they have, they're, they're, they're shooting for a solution that he thinks doesn't make sense, but at least they recognize an issue. He puts the big problem of modernity in the following terms. This one should be on that handout if you've got it, right? He writes, I maintain, therefore, and I'm not sure they're in the order that I, I'm going to read them, but you'll find them. Um, I maintain, therefore, that the common sociological method is quite useless. Uh, and then I'm going to skip down some. The only way to discuss the social evil is to get at once to the social ideal. We can see all the national madness, but what is national sanity? I have called this book, What is Wrong with the World? And the upshot of the title can be easily and clearly stated. What is wrong with the world is that we do not ask what is right. So Chesterton's particular critique is pointed at a confusion that he sees as uniquely prevalent in modernity. It's the failure to provide human beings with a proper education, a proper sense of right and wrong, a proper idea of justice. It's not the idea of progress. It's not even the idea of liberalism. It's not even the idea of socialism that he's primarily at odds with. Uh, uh, he's happy to point out the perniciousness of what, what he takes to be the perniciousness of those teachings at different points, but it's the failure of modernity as such to provide human beings with a right understanding of the goodness of the world, of what is good in human nature. 
Now, Chesterton, it seems to me here, takes this way of thinking in an important way from Thomas Aquinas. Um, And he says as much, here I'm just going to give you, I'll I'll do more Thomas proper in a minute, but just just to give you a a taste of Chesterton's Thomas. um, He makes, uh, when he's describing Thomas's politics, he makes a rather surprising claim at one point. He describes Thomas as a liberal. Um, And this is, I'm going to read the line from the handout here. Um, Of course, he doesn't mean that he's a progressive. Of course, he doesn't mean that he's a, you know, he's a a Wellesian or something like that. Um, Nor does he mean that he would have agreed with the main arguments of modern progressivism. Um, Of Thomas, Chesterton says uh, uh, the following, and and this is from that passage. He says that he was very much what they vaguely mean by a liberal. So what do they vaguely mean by a liberal? What does that indicate? I'm just going to, I'm not going to quote this, but I'm going to summarize what's at the the bottom of that. Uh, By that, Chesterton then goes on to say, uh, he didn't mean to indicate, um, again, that Thomas was a progressive. What he meant to indicate is that Thomas believed in balance and debate, believed in the freedom of the multitude, and believed that justice a genuine view of true justice should be what, stand, what sets the standards for the law. In other words, his liberalism was a kind of far-sighted political rationalism, right? Not liberal in the modern sense, but a deep preference for freedom and a deep sense that rules of right and wrong grounded in rational belief should be what frames political decision-making. Um, And in that sense, it seems to me, Chesterton, in his writings about his own conservatism, tries to ape what he sees in Thomas's writings about politics. Okay, now all of that is fine, right? And I hope all of that is is, is clear enough. Uh, But that invites, obviously, the following question, right? Um, if we need reason to guide us in our political life, if reason is what sets the standards of right and wrong, of a good life and a bad life, how does it do so? In light of what standards does one view one life as better lived than another? Where do those principles come from? And it seems to me that for both Thomas and Chesterton, that question can be answered largely with one word, and that word is nature. And now in the next part of the talk, I would like to talk a little bit about Thomas and uh, Chesterton's views of nature. So Thomas, this time I'll start with Thomas, right? Um, Thomas, as I suppose you know, um, I guess in the Thomistic Institute, it's safe to assume some familiarity with Thomas. Thomas has a very systematic account of nature, or at least a broad account of nature, uh, and we'll start there. If you pick through Thomas's account of prudence, and prudence for Thomas is the virtue of good judgment in political life, that is, the virtue that recognizes, that discerns right from wrong, good from bad, right? Um, You'll see that he ultimately refers it to a quality that he calls sundaresis, right? Um, it's this word of Greek origin that means that sometimes translated as something like conscience, uh, what we mean when we say that a person has a conscience that tells them what's right and wrong. For Thomas, 
More properly speaking, it is a natural habit by which human beings know the first principles of practical reason. To put that in, again, somewhat less pretentious terms, uh, it's something that every human being is born with that gives them at least the beginning principles on the basis of which they can, can, they can discern right from wrong. Um, that ends up translating through reason, and not everyone will know every conclusion, but that ends up translating through reason into an account of what Thomas famously calls the natural law. And the natural law for Thomas stands beside, yes, somewhat below, but also beside the divine law in ordering human beings to their proper end. Now, Thomas's account of nature in this sense is a very important piece of his window, of his approach to human life as a whole. He draws very heavily on Aristotle for this, right? For Thomas, of course, it makes sense to refer to Aristotle as the pagan philosopher. He can be expected, Thomas, I think, thinks that he went about as far as anyone who didn't have Jesus in the Bible could go in understanding the truth of the human experience. I might not stick to that if, if someone pushed me on it, but, but I, wrote, I wrote it and I, I'm saying it. Um, uh, you can see in Thomas's account, this is his heavily Aristotelian account of nature, um, how Aristotelian it is. Thomas in his natural science writings, when he's commenting on the physics, when he's commenting on the metaphysics, talks, talks endlessly about bodies in motion, about um, uh, birds and donkeys, about weather and the stars, all the phenomena that we think of as making up the natural world. Um, uh, that world, he thinks, can be scrutinized and grasped to some extent by the human mind. Now, it's true for Thomas that the natural world is not everything. Nature is God's creation, and God himself is somehow outside the realm of nature, and yet, right, um, it is the warp and woof of what the world that we live in. Okay? Now, of special interest to us, of course, is Thomas's account of human nature. That means figuring out how we work, what our bodies are like, how we perceive and think and feel, how and why we act. But for Thomas, it also means, above all, figuring out what we are for. Human beings, for Thomas Aquinas, are directed toward certain ends, and they are able to recognize the goodness of those ends through the use of their reason. Now, in his famous account of the natural law, Thomas talks about three or four, fourth is sort of bifurcated, but he talks about three ends to which human beings are directed. This is on your handout. I'm not going to read out the whole thing again, right? Um, uh, but I want to summarize it briefly. Um, so for Thomas, a natural human being is directed first toward its own preservation, right? Um, in that, we're just like all the other beings in the universe, just the same way that a rock wants to keep being a rock, so we also want to keep being ourselves, preserve ourselves as individuals. Second, we are directed toward the preservation of our species. That's something that we have in common only with the other living animals, right? Uh, we are directed toward perpetuating the human race, which means that we form families and have children, right, and, and further our, our, our progeny. 
The third thing for Thomas that we are directed toward by nature is the perfection of our reason. That perfection of our reason bifurcates to two different ends. The first of those ends is to know God, right? So by nature, human beings want to know God and are directed to know God. They can't know him completely through nature, but that's a different lecture. Um, uh, Israel, we did that. Um, uh, the second thing, and the one that's more important for our purposes, human beings are by nature social, right? And that means that they're directed to form communities and to live in communities. What that means for Thomas is that human beings are directed toward community life, civil life, political life. For him, it's part of our nature. Now, for Thomas, importantly, that fact, so this is where it comes, this is where the question that I was opening with comes back in, in a way, right? Okay, so our natural end is civic in part, right? What do we do with that in light of the divine end to which we are also called? What is a Christian to make of the vicissitudes of political life? Thomas's famous answer to that, now I'm going to use the other quote, um, is that nature does not get destroyed or eradicated by the fact that God's grace is also available. Nature, as he puts it, does not destroy but perfects nature. That means that the natural being that we are, if we follow Thomas in agreeing that we are naturally political beings, and if we follow Thomas in believing that our natural ends remain our ends, even when we become aware of superhuman satisfactions, that means that we should continue to live as citizens, as participating, engaged members of whatever community we belong to. Thomas is happy to carve out occasional exceptions for this, right? Um, he comes in a Christian, you know, he's fully aware of John the Baptist. Um, he knows about monastic orders. He knows about kind of ascetic retreats from ordinary life. But that's an occasional thing, right? For most of us, political engagement is appropriate because it's part of our God-given humanity, right? Um, and human beings couldn't sustain themselves without, without political engagement. The church could not sustain itself without political engagement any more than it could, could sustain itself if no one had babies anymore, right? Same kind of issue. Um, now, I would add to this very briefly uh, that Thomas, in his account of what civil life ought to look like, also evinces a clear preference for a free civil life, right? Not one of mere obedience and not the life of a slave. Um, he speaks repeatedly uh, of what he calls a multitude of free men as the natural stuff of politics. Chesterton, translating the same line, loves translating it, and it's a totally legitimate translation, so it's good, as a mob of free men, right? <laughs> which captures something of it. Chesterton even says they fight sometimes, you know, it's part, it's part of the fighting. Um, but that sense of freedom is one that even Thomas uh, tries to preserve as part of the natural sort of content, as, as a, how do I write it? Um, uh, as what God naturally directs us toward. Um, now, it seems to me that at heart, going back now to Chesterton, uh, that he has something of the same sense of nature, right? 
He too wants to use a notion of the goods natural to human beings as a framework for his political thought. Now in this respect, as in most, his thought is less organized um, than Thomas's. Uh, but it's very striking, and in some ways, I prefer it, right? Um, I know I shouldn't say that, but it's, it's, only in some ways, only in some ways. Um, uh, what Chesterton does, right, is try to make the goods of nature, the worth of the goods of nature clear, not through a system of deduction, but through something like poetic evocation, right? I don't mean to say that Thomas doesn't write beautifully too at times, he does, right? Um, but it's much more obvious in Chesterton's case, right? There's a kind of, like I was starting the, the talk with, there's a kind of joy in life that you become more aware of by reading someone like Chesterton. Um, and it seems to me at least uh, that that's something, that that's a very helpful corrective for us, right? In a way it's important if you're going to appreciate the goods of this life to develop a taste for them and Chesterton can, can help with that, right? Um, so, a couple of things that I want to say, and I, I'm getting, um, uh, uh, so he's got this rich sense, as I said, of the world's goodness, both in what God's created directly and what he's given it, uh, give, given to human beings to build. Chesterton's essays are full of reflections on these kinds of things, right? He's got essays on landscapes, on Shakespeare, on gargoyles, on vulgarity, um, on the common man, on cheese, right? All kinds of these charms of ordinary life that he can do justice to in a way that can be tough to see and that doesn't make them coarse or harsh, but makes them truly good and objects of reflection in addition to you know, resources that we mine for the most intense pleasures that we can pull out of them. Um, what does that mean about politics, right? Where does that get its ends? Chesterton offers two parts of his vision, I would say. Um, first, Chesterton has a very rich understanding of family life. Right? There, he begins as uh, he begins as Thomas begins. Right? Um, I think his pictures of the complexity and depth and joy of real family life are among the richest and most compelling parts of his writing. I'm happy to take them up at more length uh, afterwards, right? Um, but he shows family life, it seems to me, in its fullness, both as a source of great joy and great satisfaction, but one that comes with, or is in some ways a result of, great tensions that exist within families. Uh, in a family, Chesterton likes to point out, you can't just leave behind someone who doesn't please you, right? You can't break up with your brother or sister in the same way that you can dump a friend who bores you or who's not as much fun as you would like, like them to be. When your family members make choices that don't please you, you still have a familial obligation to them. It's not always nice for Chesterton and it's not always easy, but it does make possible a kind of joy and satisfaction that otherwise would not be possible it makes it more possible for us human beings to live with each other, right? To live with each other in our differences rather than merely coming to a kind of economic arrangement between ourselves that keeps us from bumping into each other too much but doesn't really provide the full breadth of human interaction. When I say this, and I think it's probably clear uh, from the way that I'm casting it, 
I do have in mind that Chesterton sees this as a particular version of that problem of modern politics, right? Um, we lose sight of our individualism in a way causes us to lose sight of the goods of community and fellowship. Um, Chesterton says as much. Uh, the importance places as much importance on places so much importance on family life at the end of the first chapter of that what's wrong with the world piece. Here I'll read out another short quote. I gave you a longish quote, but I'm just going to read the end. Uh, and it's his answer, in a way, to that question that he had posed that I mentioned before, what is the ideal in light of which we live? And he gives the following simple, succinct, but I think in many ways persuasive answer. The idea of private property, universal but private, so for him that means families living in homes, in their own homes. The idea of private property, universal but private, the idea of families free but still families, of domesticity, democratic but still domestic, of one man, one house. This remains the real vision and magnet of mankind, right? Family life, he calls the real vision and magnet of mankind. The world may accept something more official in general, less human and intimate, but the world will be like a broken-hearted woman who makes a humdrum marriage because she may not make a happy one. And then he throws in a, a, a shot against socialism, right? Um, which is, <laughs> that's the main theme of that book, but that's not the main thing that I wanted to, uh, 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 to focus on. That's also Chesterton's big solution to the, his, this is not part of the talk, but uh, his big solution to the economic problem was uh, 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 proprietorship among peasants, right? Like, like getting the lower classes into homes, right? Where they could live with their families and have that private world that they were denied. So that's point number one. Um, second point is that this taste for family life for Chesterton translates into a taste for politics and an awareness of the need for a healthy political life. Um, and it does that in two ways. It does it first by providing a kind of training ground for real uncomfortable political engagement and it does it also by giving us a reason for that engagement, by giving human beings an end and a good which they truly can cherish. Okay, so those are my two big points. I want to wrap up now very briefly. Right? What does this mean about Catholic political engagement? What do I encourage you all to take away from this? Um, first, I acknowledge that there are some vocations which do not require or even particularly allow uh, political engagement. I value them. I think they're an important part of their church. But at the same time, for most of us, for those of us who live normal lives, political engagement, attempting to be good citizens and to be good citizens as, as Catholics is both a duty and a great good. And when we come to see ourselves as social creatures, when we're trained as social creatures, when we, not as moderns, but as ancients, hearkening back to the wisdom of Aristotle, see that human beings are by nature political, we will see that some of our deepest satisfactions lie in shared communal life, even when we have deep disagreements with others. And in that sense, it seems to me that Chesterton and Thomas Aquinas Aristotle, too, if you want, 
all militate against a certain dangerous modern tendency, and that's to neglect politics totally for bad reasons. We live, we are all brought up in a world that, in my opinion, is overly individuated, overly commercial, and that directs too much of our attention always back to ourselves. There's a danger that we'll give up political engagements. I see this too often among my students. Give up political engagement, singular. Um, uh, but that we'll give that up not because we've become aware of some possibility that's higher than it, in light of which it seems unimportant, but because it seems like it's too much trouble and we're going, we'll go back to being the selfish, self-centered, narcissistic beings that so much of our world encourages us to be. And in that sense, I would suggest that what Thomas and Chesterton can offer, a sense of the problem that modernity poses and a richer sense of human nature, which contains a fuller sense of our shared life, uh, also suggests that it's necessary for us to embrace living in a political world. Thank you very much. Yeah, I usually find actually the most fun parts of these things are the, the back and forth. So I am happy to take questions. Uh, and people should not feel with me. Um, no one should worry about like being polite to me, right? I like, I like arguing with people. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to, any, anyone who wants to take something up, if you, I mean, I'm happy, you, know, you, can, you can ask a friendly question too, obviously. But if you, <laughs> if you want to criticize me, go for it. Yes. I guess I had a question. Like, oh, and can you guys say your names as you as you do your questions? Yeah. Miguel first. Miguel. Um, so I, I grew up Catholic, right? Like a lot of people here, and then slowly drifted, right? Kind of things happen, and you find the new atheists and read Christopher Hitchens and all this stuff, and then kind of realize that that's empty, right? That's kind of a dead end as far as finding these greater goods, right? Like yeah. Being being. And um, but you know I. I wonder, I guess, your perspective on, on this, like, it seems like both the conservative um, kind of quote-unquote traditional view, right, is centered around family and community, but the, the I guess, the resistance to it, like a more like, would-be progressive mm -hmm. kind of, you know, even socialist side is also like trying to fill that void right from the other side is that like like because we're so atomized and individualized and, and, and separated from community because of the system that we're in like they're they're both responses right? or one is like a, a, a traditional view and then there's a response that's trying to fill that same kind of role right trying to find a sense of community and family and belonging working toward a greater good but with different ends in mind. Mm -hmm. And like, I guess, what would you suggest for trying to bridge those, right? Yeah, okay, so yes, no, that's a very good question. Um, uh, and you mentioned your dalliance with new atheism. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, I'm gonna give a simple answer, but I might say a little more at the end, okay. So my simple answer is this. In some ways, like what I was trying to do today was provide some sort of common ground for, I put so much emphasis on nature, right? Because I really wanted to talk about things that it seems to me believers and unbelievers can have in common. And I wanted to 
call some attention to the ways in which the modern world truncates how we think about ourselves. The truth is, I don't think there's any like nice solution to this other than trying to live differently. I mean, that sounds so superficial, right? Um, but uh, uh, that, you know, studying books, living in communities, dealing with other people is actually a great education. You know, you just, I mean, this is sort of a dumb remark, but uh, when you see people with like families, they don't, know, they don't talk so much about like the crisis of modernity or the emptiness <laughs> of life. And I, I doubt there's any, Sometimes they do, but not, not as much. And I, I don't think there's really probably any replacement for that in, in, in the human world. Now, well, Chesterton, I think, has a lot of sympathy with progressives. I mean, I, I kind of emphasize the criticism in this, but this whole book, What's Wrong with the World, it says, you know, like H.G. Wells gets something right. He sees there's something gone awry with our politics. We're very prosperous, but people aren't happy. Why, right? In some ways, that's the big problem of modernity. Why is we have prosperity, unfathomable prosperity from like a world historical level? Why does everyone talk all the time about how miserable they are? Isn't it crazy? And I know, I don't know, maybe it's not true of all of you, but it's, 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 true, of the, it's, it's true of enough of the world that it's worth, just if you watch TV, right? It's, it's true <laughs> enough of the world that it's, it's worth saying. Uh, do you want to say more, Miguel? I, I'm not sure I got to everything. Uh, no, I mean that's just—I guess that's just like something I've been like trying to to, to think about, right? Like as I—I I, I can't say that I've gone back to my Catholic faith or anything in yeah. that regard. Um, but in some ways, just kind of looking at, at, at right-wing reactionary critiques of modernity, right? Yeah. That end up kind of diagnosing some of those ills, right? Is that like once once you reach a certain point, like it seems like we fragment and we we you see kind of dangerous trends for that kind of communal thinking like when you think that people don't want to have families anymore people don't want to have children and it creates a kind of malleable society right which is not a society it's a bunch of individuals that can that cannot exert collective power in any meaningful way because none of them have shared interests and families are one way to kind of like shore up some protection in that regard. Like if you have a family, you have people you rely on, you have a community to rely on. And when you don't, you know, it, it's very difficult to move through the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think here, I think Aristotle's right. Like we're, we're political creatures and there's no solution for that. Um, there's no, there's no way to get out of that. They, 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 you know, they're, they're, Others, yes. Um, uh, so, the, like, you hear a lot about Chesterton and his views of like peasant proprietorship that seem like a really kind of refreshing, like, other option to modern conservatism, some like grand modern conservatism. But there's not like a like a party that like espouses Chestertonian distributism. <laughs> like, what are like the like practical things that we can do to like? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everyone always asks me for solutions, and I'm always a little. We both did. Um, I don't know. Is the truth? Uh, uh, what? 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 What can we do? Uh, all right. I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of the answers that I hear, but then I'm going to tell you why I don't really find them satisfying. Um, so one thing that people talk about a lot uh, is finding like community. They call it communities of meaning, right? Um, so they say, you know, go to a little, find a little 
group of people, group of friends that you can be with and build your life around some principle that's not going to be like the national political principle, but that is going to be what you guys do, right? So this have like, it's almost like having clubs. Um, I'm all for that in a way, right? I'm not against clubs, but um, I just think Chesterton has a point when he says that the thing that usually, and this goes back to my study of the Greeks, right? You guys know I do the Greeks first and foremost. And I think that the main thing that the main sort of school through which people are formed into citizens and through which they're formed into not just citizens, but like happy individuals is through families. And again, that's not to say, absolutely not to say that there aren't individuals who rise above that and with, with incredibly impressive qualities. I know people like, I know plenty of people like that, right? And in, in the modern world where people are less and less pushed into that model of life, you know, the exceptional qualities that don't, that aren't going, you, you see more often the exceptional qualities that occur outside of that world that aren't going to uh, uh, show up there, right? Um, but I, I don't think there's much of a replacement for it. What, do you, what, what, what would I advocate for in terms of public policy? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't like to say I'm not that kind of political scientist, but it's kind of true. Um, I think Chesterton's point that home ownership, family life, community life, social life, that's a happier life than the one that, that doesn't have any of those things. And that's something I think that people agree on, again, whether they're... Polkville says that, right? Alexis de Tocqueville, my favorite analyst of American politics. I don't know. Does that make sense? No, that's a good answer. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Dessie, for Thank your you. articulation. Um, I always refrain from like asking practical questions precisely because they're so complicated <laughs> and they have so many different variables. But there is a common thing within. <laughs> I knew but was going to be the next word. <laughs> <laughs> there was a common thing within uh, your your presentation today, and it was this concept of nature. <laughs> right now, in our current postmodern society, this very concept has been rejected, and there's a huge skeptic huge skepticism as to what entails nature. Everything is analyzed within the uh, dynamics of power, and, and that's how our social relationships are analyzed. Yeah. And the skepticism to human nature comes down to sexual morality, you know, identity, I mean, all sorts of things, and it's a deconstruction of nature. So I find it difficult to engage with people on the other side because right now you said you find common yeah. ground in this name yeah. of nature, and it doesn't seem to me that nature is as common as we thought. And some of these huge opponents of nature have argued that in the past people have made arguments in favor of nature that have actually enslaved people and that have actually done you know very bad things. Um, I yeah, I studied uh, applying myself too, and you know his distinctions between the will and like all these things. And that seems beautiful to me, but I can't reject my biases as a theist that believes that there is a specific right order to society, to sexual morality, to just human life. Like, I guess, how is it that nature can become a common theme between, I guess, I don't want to say conservatives versus progressives, but against, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So how can that be this? It, it seems to me that there's that nature is not as common as we think. 
<coughs> yeah, uh, you're certainly right that not everyone agrees with this, um, and I know that I'm going to give you know I, I, I give this uh, even this talk if I were not giving it to an audience of a Thomistic Institute audience, I would have framed it differently. Right? There are things that that, that would have gotten people's hackles up, um, and in some cases for good reason. So one thing I want to say to begin with is uh, you point out that some progressives will say. Ideas of nature have been used, false ideas of nature have been used to enslave people. That is absolutely true, right? There's just, there's, one can't consistently deny it, right? Um, one can't honestly deny it. So it becomes, you know, one has to raise the question of what nature is and can you provide a, an account of it that's persuasive to everybody? My sense, unfortunately, is that you probably can't, right? Um, and here I'm drawing from, I think, Thomas, but especially Aristotle in this case, right? Aristotle makes so much of the fact of your upbringing, right? Um, uh, and he says that it's really necessary if you're going to appreciate the truth about a good human life to be raised the right way. He knows that some people break that mold and it's wonderful when they do, but on a societal level, it's very hard to get people, like just you won't have you won't have as many and as stable virtues if you don't have people who are being raised to appreciate those virtues. I don't know what the again. I again. I, every time I talk, every time I talk about something practical like this, I always feel the weight of the fact that my solutions are so flimsy in comparison to the problem. I think for those, I guess I would just say this, and this is something I feel like Chesterton has has, has helped me with some, right? Um, uh, for those who, I'm gonna say something else about. Let me not forget to say one thing. Um, uh, but for those who have a well enough educated palate, as it were, palate's too superficial. But those who are educated in a virtuous, decent life can live well now, right? That it's not like you know we're not. This isn't the worst situation. I'm always so. I mean, one simple thing is I'm so pleased when I go around the country and come to these TI events because I mean all these like wonderful young people who are like curious and on their way to good lives of different kinds. You know, I get I, you, you get an unusual concentration in these crowds of uh, people with vocations, right? Um, but also people who are on their way to forming families and young people who, who are invested in that and that good life is still possible. And then I would just say without offering a solution that the best thing one can do is become engaged in politics and advocate for things that are worth advocating for, right? Like the, the only solution I know of in a democratic republic is for decent people like to, to engage in politics in a decent way. Um, and that's hard. Look, I don't like, you know, I, I mean, you guys are you guys are mostly old enough to have voted in the 2016 election, right? I'm not supposed to talk about politics and the TI events, but that's fine. Like for a Catholic, like what kind of a vote was that, right? Like one side was pro-abortion, right, and the other side was, was Trump. I mean, <laughs> it's just, I, it's just what do you, what does being politically active do? I, I don't know. I mean. This is my attempt at political engagement in some ways, and I encourage you guys just to live, you know, uh, uh, live the best lives you can, engage in your communities, advocate for things you believe are right, say the truth. Um, I know it's flimsy, right? I don't have, you know, 
Modernity is a big problem. We've been wrestling with it for centuries, and like I can't, you know, <laughs> I, 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 that's, that's all I have. Yeah. Well, on a follow up, just yeah, please. Because, uh, and I think Charles does a very good will, a very good job at defending like truth and you know like these things and being able to find beauty and like you know he's very creative in these ways. And I think that precisely the issue comes down to like the skepticism to truth. And I mean, as soon as you start doubting that truth is even accessible, yeah. like nature, of course, become, because nature is supposed to reflect truth. So as soon as you disregard truth, like nature becomes like yeah. one more thing. So. That's very nicely put. And I, I would say two things about that. One is people who encounter the world in the right way. That sounds like pretend, it sounds pretentious. But what I mean by that is people yeah. who are raised <laughs> the right way, like don't have those deep doubts about truth. Other thing I would say is when you start studying philosophy, as I know many of you here are doing, um, truth is tough to come by, right? Like if you needed to defend truth, the idea of truth against postmodernism, right? For every family that wanted to live that way, you couldn't, you know, if, if everyone, if every, look, I, I, this is what I do for a living, right? I do like studying philosophy. I think it's a high vocation. I think it help, can help clarify things about the world, about God, about ourselves, about all of that. But it also means facing really tough questions. Ordinary life is not usually about like, you know, sitting in your office trying to think of, trying to figure out whether there's a response to Nietzsche or something like that. Um, <laughs> that's unfortunately what philosophy needs to do because there have been a lot of, there are a lot of opponents of truth in our sense who are unfortunately for us profoundly intelligent, right? Um, so, you know, I, I mean, you were mentioning before, Miguel, these, even like the new atheist, right? There's like a belief in God is an automatic, right? Even I think in, in our days for people who come at it sincerely, and it's just, you know. All right, sorry, I was a little rambly. Any other? Yes, please. Hi, my name is Bruner, I'm one of these. Say your name again. Boomer. Boomer. Yeah, I'm one of these philosophers who spends a lot of time thinking about this stuff and spinning my wheels, unfortunately. I also really love Aristotle. And so um, I agree that forming families and political communities is really great. I agree that conservatism can have more or less intelligent ways of forming it. But one of the interesting things uh, I think about contemporary conservatism in America is it it's very strange to figure out how that applies to the real world. Because whenever you start to, whenever you start to look at statistics, uh, stuff like life expectancy, or GDP per capita, or productivity of universities, or funding universities, or allowing universities to have something like tenure, all of those things do way better in democratic-controlled states than conservative ones. And then when you look at negative stuff, like the number of prisoners per capita, the incidence of domestic violence per capita, all that kind of stuff. The bad stuff looks way more highly correlated with Republican-led uh, states than Democratic-led states. So you have this idea of conservatism that makes a lot of sense theoretically, right. but practically speaking, it becomes incredibly unclear as to how you deal with that. So, do you, so I mean, yeah. I don't want you. You don't have to go into your personal beliefs. No, that's fine. But do you think Chester, Chesterton or Thomas? Uh, would have some sort of reply where on the one hand they totally acknowledge that they have some theoretical uh, proper footholding for what a conservative could be 
But whenever it comes to the practical politics, the way that quote unquote conservatives are running things actually is counterintuitive and leading to societies that are sicker and worse off and have fewer economic opportunities and that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay, that's a very good question. There's a lot to say about that. Um, one simple response would be that conservative ideas and conservative governance, you know, conservative populations and conservative governance don't always go together. And uh, I suspect that at least sometimes that's a cause of it. Um, another is, so I hope this is not, um, I would put it this way, that people's political beliefs often are not, um, they're the consequence sometimes of other things about their life situation, right? And I think it's true today that certain kinds of conservative ideas, not all, but certain kinds are especially uh, attractive to people who are not economically successful, right? Um, uh, to, to lower classes. It's not the only kind of conservatism. I'm not saying that's all the Republican Party is made of. I don't think so. Um, but it, it's true, right? And I would say that those... You know, being someone who comes from an economically, I mean, to use our term, economically disadvantaged background also is a consequence, also is one reason that sometimes it can be even a reason that people adopt conservative beliefs. But of course, it's always going to come with worse outcomes, as you're putting it. Um, the other thing I would say is that, I mean, this is something I have thought a lot about, right? Like the, the apparent success of uh, a certain part of the elite, like, you know, where I, I'm from the Northeast, right? So I'm from, I, you know, I grew up, uh, I, it was unusual to grow up as a Thomist in the Northeast where I came from, right? Um, uh, you would get more often people who were, um, you know, very liberal, but very successful. I grew up in what, what is frankly a, uh, my parents were of, of, a, of a different, of a certain, they, they had moved into the, the town many years before, but we grew up in a very wealthy community, basically. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, those people have good, like, statistical outcomes, I, I would say, despite the fact that they're not, they weren't conservative, even in this qualified Chestertonian sense. Um, I guess what I would say is that for all of the truth that there is to that, so many of the wealthy, apparently successful people are so unhappy, right? kind of weird fact that you can have all of this wealth and all of this commercial success and still be miserable, but it happens all the time, right, in my experience. I mean, so many, like, just the midlife crisis, right, in some ways is, is, a, is a problem of modernity. This is a somewhat shady answer, or somewhat inadequate answer. Let me, let me say one last thing. I cannot pretend and do not pretend to be able to provide like a root analysis of the cause of all our social ills. I've just been trying to focus on one problem and one, I think, good Chestertonian Thomistic solution to it. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to throw into your, into your, and this just occurred to me because I thought I should say it. Um, when I read Chesterton, I, you know, I've become a fan. There are things about him that are wonderful. There are things in him I don't like. I've chosen not to focus on those today. But sometimes, especially, uh, I don't like the way he speaks about Jews, for instance. Um, and there are, there are other examples like that that I've watched sheep. OK. Are there other questions? I think we might have time for one last question. There's no question. Yes. Yeah, I have a seat. Say it again. 
Thank you. Oh, that's it. Um, my question would be, if you have a historical example that had virtue and successful political leadership that Aquinas is just I think Thomas More. Um, he's, he's one of my, my personal favorite heroes. Uh, maybe St. Augustine. Maybe King Louis. Maybe Frederick II. Um, Martin Luther King, uh, to take an example from a very different way, di different uh, context, right? Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, right? Um, uh, Winston Churchill, right? Especially when you're thinking just about natural virtues. I think there are lots of examples of people who had these remarkable virtues and were politically successful. I'm glad you asked that because I, I think I went a little, uh, in the substance of the talk, I moved away a little bit from what I would call like the Machiavellian suggestion that I was floating in the beginning, that politics is just too much the stuff of ugliness to be uh, acceptable to a decent person. But I would say history, in fact, is full of some very fine examples of non-Machiavellian politicians who were very virtuous and very successful. Let's give a round of applause. Thank you so much,